Good morning. If you have your uh, Bibles, we're going to start with just reading out of a passage of Colossians here, Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 10, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And it says this, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Just pray quick. God, I just pray that uh, as we go through this, your word, your truth, uh, pierces our hearts. Father, convict us of where we fail. And Lord, let us rejoice in you for the great glory and love that we have. Amen. So we've been going through the book of Colossians, and if you haven't been here, uh, we're, we're just kind of walking through the book of Colossians uh, piece by piece. Uh, and really what we're trying to kind of see is that, that Colossians here... The people of Colossae have kind of gone wayward. They've lost the essence of what they should believe, and Paul's kind of reminding them to go back to that. And essentially what Paul is reminding him specifically is of the gospel, but ultimately that the gospel is what is to remain supreme. Okay, That Christ is superior to all things, and that's kind of the theme that we've been tracking and we're going to continue to track today that, again, ultimately Christ needs to be ruling our hearts and in control of our hearts. Uh, and so as, we, as I looked at this passage and I thought about this idea of hollow and deceptive philosophies, I thought, you know, I think there's, there's two philosophies that we deal with as Americans, uh, and one particularly here is stressed in, in the gospel, and that's what I want to I challenge us with that, and then ultimately see how Christ is superior to both of these philosophies that is quite prevalent with America. We see it all the time. Uh, so the first one has really probably gained steam within the last two decades, this idea of hedonism. The whole idea of hedonism is that you are maximizing pleasure while minimizing pain. Now, now nobody ever says that. But, but here's probably what's more common. We hear the idea of postmodern. Postmodern is the idea that there's no absolute truth. And so here's really what's going on. We all say things are postmodern. There's no absolute truth because that is the excuse for hedonism. Because if there's no absolute truth, I get to really do what I want, and that's really what the heart is. I want to live how I want to live. Okay? Um, and so I'm sure you probably hear people say things oftentimes like, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Do what feels good, right? We've become such an emotional and touchy-feely society that we've basically said, let's just throw logic out the window, and whatever feels good to you, well, that's clearly the right answer, okay? Um, and oftentimes, we'll actually cite the Declaration of Independence, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's, that's our, our found, you know, it's in the, you know, it's in the declaration. It's one of our founding documents. So therefore, you know, if our founding father said it, this is obviously what we should agree to, right? So, so that's one of the prevalent ones. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, the second one 
is the idea of legalism. And legalism is the idea that you can achieve salvation through good works. Uh, it's, you know, that if I follow all the rules and I do all everything God wants me to do, I'll get in heaven, right? So if I show up to church on Sundays, right, if I put some money in the offering plate, uh, if I'm good to my neighbors and at Thanksgiving I donate turkeys to the poor, then legalism says you're a good person and you get to go to heaven, right? That's, that's one of the other things that we often see. Uh, and so people, again, think that the essence of their good works makes them acceptable to who God is. And we're constantly confronted with these two, I think, in America. So let me just tackle both of these and show us why these really are faulty thought processes and philosophies. And then we'll get into the scripture and basically highlight why Christ is superior to this philosophies and any other philosophy that exists. So let's just go back to hedonism. Now, as I said, we often will cite the Declaration of Independence as th- this, this point that says, yes, you, just, you do what makes you happy. Well, here's the thing. Historically, that's not even correct. Okay, that's not even correct historically. So when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, he borrowed this idea from John Locke. John Locke was an English philosopher, and he basically looked at the kings in England and looked at the kings around the world, and he he wrote this book called The Two Treatises of Government. And he basically said in this book, he said, kings are wrong, and democracy is the best idea. Okay, that was the simple premise of his argument. Kings were wrong, and democracy is the best idea. And in that, he wrote the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Now, Thomas Jefferson didn't like that idea of the pursuit of property. He wanted the idea of the pursuit of happiness. And so he gets that idea because John Locke writes another book called The Essay Concerning Human Understanding, in which he says, the necessity of pursuing happiness is the foundation of glory, right? So this is where Thomas Jefferson is getting all of his ideas for the Declaration of Independence. Now, here's the part that nobody really knows and nobody really understands because, again, right, Declaration, let's live pursuit of happiness, got it, great, let's live our lives however it is we want to live in America, long live democracy, right? Well, here's the thing. When John Locke was talking about this idea of pursuing happiness, He talked about this idea that there's imaginary happiness and real happiness. See, imaginary happiness is the temporary desires that I want. And John Locke said, that's not what I'm talking about. So it's kind of like, here's imaginary happiness. Uh, I had breakfast. I had, you know, an egg sandwich, and I had an apple. I had my OJ. uh, And then I get here, right, and there's like these really good donuts, right? And I go, imaginary happiness says, that donut looks really good right now, even though I'm not hungry. And so then I eat it, and I feel awful, right? That's what John Locke is getting at, is there are things that we feel like in the moment we want, but aren't really happiness for us. What he talked about is we need to pursue real happiness. Now, now here's the thing. That, that I think is just so fascinating. And again, this is why we get it wrong historically, because when John Locke was talking about this idea of real happiness, here's what he says. When he's thinking about government and he's thinking about democracy, here's what underlines all of John Locke's thoughts. He said, the law of nature stands as an eternal rule to all men, legislators as well. The rules that they make for other men's actions must be conformable to the law of nature, i.e. to the will of God. 
Laws humans must be made according to the general laws of nature and without contradiction to any positive law of Scripture. Otherwise, they are ill-made. So what John Locke is saying is this. Anything we follow in terms of happiness must confirm to the will of God and to the biblical Scripture. So when people say... I have the right to pursue happiness, we should be saying, absolutely, you should be following God's law because that's what John Locke originally intended and that's what Thomas Jefferson originally intended. Excuse me, right? So there is some higher philosophy here that nobody understands historically. But yet in our country, we look at that and go, no, this gives me the freedom to do whatever I want. So historically, that doesn't make any sense. Now, let me show you why, just as a philosophy, this doesn't make sense in general for me to pursue my own happiness, because here's why. If I choose to not exercise, eat fast food all day, and play video games... Does anybody have a right to tell me that I'm wrong? In the world of hedonism and postmodernism, absolutely not. Because there is no absolute truth, and if it's all about maximizing my pleasure, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? And so here's the problem. Any type of destructive behavior that someone is doing, we have no right to tell them that they're wrong. So let me give you a better example. If somebody decides that they want to start drinking and drive a car, again, hedonism says, I am maximizing my pleasure because I just want to get drunk. And I want to drive a car because it's going to make me happy. And if I then get into an accident, or Lord willing, hopefully never happens, but again, somebody gets into an accident and kills someone, all of a sudden now we're mad at the person for what they've done. But we've created a culture that has just told people, you do whatever you feel like doing. But now, all of a sudden, we're going to tell people that they're wrong. Well, why? Well, because your happiness really infringed on my happiness. So really, what the essence is, your happiness is more valuable than my happiness. See how self-centered we are in all of this? See, that philosophy doesn't make any sense. Because whatever you do is going to impact somebody else. Whatever you do is going to have implications on another person's life. And really at the heart of it, all we're saying is, I want to be able to do what I want and not have anybody tell me that I can't. Okay? So, so this idea that you do whatever you feel like in America, all these laws we're making that just says do it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you know what? Here's the thing. Since 2000, here's what we've found. Statistically... There has been an increase in alcoholic, drug-related, and suicide deaths since 2000, and the number continues to rise. Because in all of this philosophy that whatever says, I do feels good, you know what we're realizing? It doesn't work. It's a destructive system that is only leaving people more broken and more hollow on the inside. Okay? So, so that's completely wrong. That doesn't make any sense in what we're doing. And, I mean, even think about this. You know, we've gotten now to a culture where every time I turn on the news, it's one more protest. And it's one more protest in the name of tolerance. And it's one more protest in the name of freedom. But yet, why every time I see these protests, they always turn violent? Have we thought about that? Because here's what we're saying. I don't like what you're doing, and I have a right to tell you that you're wrong, and I can do, achieve that by any sort of the means. But see, when somebody wants to 
to counteract that, then we yell at them, even though you've been given the same privilege to do what you want, but that person can't do what they want. See, again, it just it collapses on itself. It just doesn't make any sense, but yet this is what we follow in America. Okay? Now, let me, let me tackle the second issue of legalism. And I think this is really more at the heart of what Paul's getting at, but I felt it was important for us to confront this idea of hedonism in America. So here's what, again, legalism says that I can earn salvation. And this is the prevalent thing of the time period for the Pharisees. This is what, you know, I think Paul is really, is really getting at. But uh, it, it says this. It says that basically if I do good enough or, or if I'm a good person, I get to go to heaven. That's what legalism says. And ultimately, what are we doing? We simply put legalism on a scale. And we go, okay, as long as I've done more good than bad then God will let me into heaven, right? Okay, so let's use that argument. If you're a good enough person, right, if you're a Mother Teresa who's done more good in her life, then God will let you in. Let's, let's put this in perspective. Here's what it means. Monday through Friday, I'm going to be very conscious of what I'm doing, and I'm going to do lots of good works. Five days out of the week, I'm going to do lots of good works. You know what I'm going to do on the weekend? I'm going to live it up, and I'm going to act like an idiot. And so all I need to do is make sure that my bad doesn't tip the scale, because that's what legalism says, right? As long as I'm a good person, I get in. Well, you know what somebody's going to say to that? Yeah, but see, a good person wouldn't do that. Ah, you're right. A good person wouldn't do that. But see, here's the problem. Don't we all do bad? Yeah. Well... If a good person would never do bad, and we all do bad, I can't be a good person. And therefore, I'm never good enough to get into heaven. And that's why legalism fails on itself. It just doesn't make sense as a philosophy. So, so what are we left with then? If these are the two major ones in America, what, what are we left with? Well, again, let's go back to God's word here. Let's go back into Colossians 2 uh, and see what he says, right? Here, here's what Paul is telling us, verse 11. It says, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations and was against that and stood opposed to it and he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So again, he's speaking to the people of Colossae, right? They've lost their way. He's trying to remind them that, listen, our acceptance to God is simply based on his grace, love, and mercy. It's an unconditional love for us. And so this issue of circumcision is what people are struggling with. And we see this in Acts chapter 15, right? All of these people meet at, at, um, at Jerusalem, and they're going to have this big conversation because everybody's saying this. They're saying, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised, and according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. This is legalism, right? People were coming down and saying, listen, if you want to go to heaven, you also have to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, 
you can't get to heaven. That was what everybody's debating back then. All the apostles, the teachers, everybody's trying to wrestle with this issue. Okay? And if we go back to Genesis chapter 17, okay, God gave this commandment of circumcision, but, but, but let's understand what God was trying to do with this. Okay? He says in verse 17, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. And this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between you and me. So essentially what God said back in the Old Testament was this. You be circumcised, and this is a sign between you and me. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your father, and you will be my children. That was the point. It was meant to be a sign. But what were people doing? They were taking this command of God and making it a requirement for salvation, and that's never what God intended. It simply was a sign. It's kind of like my wedding ring, right? If I take off my wedding ring and I put it in my pocket, does this make me any less married? No. I'm still married to my wife. This is simply just a sign to people that says I'm married. And so that's what Paul's trying to wrestle these people through in this issue of circumcision. He says, listen, you've made this a law, but, but the circumcision Paul's getting at is this. He says, guys, it, it's not an external. It's an internal circumcision that we're dealing with. That's what we have to wrestle with. Okay? He, he says, listen, you were apart from God because in your heart you were uncircumcised. Oh, it's, okay, so, so let's, let's flush this out here. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, you made a decision in your heart to not embrace who Christ was. You made a decision in your heart to not accept God and his forgiveness. So therefore, you do not have the sign or the promise that God gave you and you are still uncircumcised. And as a result, in our hearts, because we have not accepted Christ, we are sinners deserving of death. Okay? We're sinners of deserving of death. And God said, if you're going to sin and you're going to break my law, there is a consequence and there is a punish for that, and that is eternal death, and you will face that someday. So when we put our faith into Christ, we become circumcised in our hearts. This is the sign. This is the promise to us. And here's what it says in verse 13 again. It says, When you are dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. And he took it, nailing it to the cross. Right? So, so the philosophy is this. You can't earn salvation. You need Christ in your life. You've forgotten that. You've put all these extra requirements. Those are foolish and hollow, deceptive philosophies that lead you astray. What you need is Christ in your life, and when you have Christ in your life, he has canceled the written code. He has canceled that punishment of death in your life. Romans, Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, there is no condemnation. I am free 
from sin and the power of death over me. So again, anything that we hear, these are all hollow and deceptive philosophies. And so why is Christ superior? Because again, what does it say there? Verse 10, Christ is the head over every power and authority. He is the head. And here, here is why also it's supreme. And here's why nothing holds to the weight of who Jesus Christ is. In verse 14, he says, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. This written code that said you're, you're, you deserve death. And then in verse 15, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, here's the irony of it all. When they nailed Christ to the cross, they thought they were getting rid of the troublemaker. They thought they were doing the world a service. They thought they were putting away all of their problems. And little did they know that it was by nailing him to the cross, it was fulfilling everything that God wanted. And what does he do? God made a public spectacle of them. He made a mockery of them. Well, wait a minute. How did he make a mockery of them? Because he went, I mean, he was beaten pretty bad, and he was nailed on a cross, and he was bleeding, and they stabbed him. How does that make a public spectacle? Well, well here's something I want us to, to go back to before I come to that. He uses this really, really good word. He says, triumphing over them by the cross. See, here's the idea of this word, triumph. In ancient Rome, they had these things called Roman triumphs. And what would happen is this, that if I was a commander of a Roman army, a Roman legion, right, and I, I had won a major victory or I won a major battle or I conquered this enemy, the Roman Senate could, could look at me and go, you know what, Adam did a great job. We should hold a Roman triumph for him. Because these Roman triumphs were reminders of all about Rome's glory and all about Rome's military strength. And so they would say, you know, we've granted you a triumph, Adam. You're going to get to come, and we're going to have this lavish parade. And what I get to do is I basically get to sit in this chariot pulled by four horses. And they put a crown on my head of laurel leaves. And they put on a purple robe as a sign of royalty. And they have all of these people line the street. I mean, this is, this is like 4th of July to the umpteenth degree. And the streets are just lined. And, and they parade me through the street. And people are playing music. And there's baton twirlers. And people are singing the praises of the victory that I have won. And as I'm being paraded through the streets of Rome, which are just packed, then coming behind me is my soldiers and my army, and they're cheering for my army. And, and then as my army is proceeding through, I, I'm, I'm we're carrying all of the treasures and all of the money that I've captured. And you know who else is following? All of the captured slaves from that battle or from that, those, those victories that I've won. And there they are just humiliated as they're being paraded through the streets, realizing that it was us and the Roman power and the Roman glory is stronger than anything else. And then I would go all the way to the temple of Jupiter, which was the Roman equivalent of Zeus, and I would make sacrifices at the table, and then basically at night, we would hold this mega party where all of the VIPs were invited, and we would throw this big lash party that would go on for days and days and days, celebrating what I had done. See, that's what a Roman triumph was. And what is Paul saying? Again, he's saying, 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Right? Because every single philosophy, everything you believe is all one day going to be paraded through the streets behind Jesus Christ as the victor. Well, wait a minute. Christ died on the cross. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was nailed. He was, he was mocked and ridiculed. Where is the victory? The victory is this, that three days later, he rose again to prove what he said he was going to do and to prove that he was God. What did Adam tell us last week? That Jesus is alive. Oh, he is alive. He is very, very much alive. And he is our victor. And he will lead the parade. And everything else will be subjected to Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. And every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We believe in all kinds of things all kinds of foolishness and all kinds of nonsense. There's all kinds of world religions out there. But here's the thing. Our God came down and our God died on the cross because he wanted to give us life. And then he rose again and he proved to the world, I am who I said I am. And I am Lord and Savior. And we have a choice. That can remain superior or we can follow some other empty hollow and deceptive philosophy that will lead us astray and only lead us to death. We will reap the consequences of those actions. And so as Paul is telling the Colossians, I'm telling us, and this goes for me and myself, we have to make a decision. Am I going to let Christ rule my heart? Am I going to let him be my Lord and Savior, or will I push him aside for every self-indulgent desire that I have? One will give me life, and one will bring me a life of pain and misery and eternal death. That's the choice that we need to make, and that's what Paul is imploring the Colossians to do, and I'm imploring you to do. Let Christ rule your heart in every decision and thought and way of life that you live, Christ must rule. Let's pray. God, forgive us for the idols that we put. Oftentimes, these are idols that we don't see. We put a good name, a good reputation. We put money. We put comforts and luxuries above you, Father, thinking that it is these that will give us happiness. It is these that will bring us joy in life. But Lord, time and time again, we are left empty by such thinking. Because Christ, the only way that we can find a life of meaning and a life of purpose and a life of satisfaction is a life that is devoted to you. And the comfort that I have, God, 
is that you raised again three days later. And Lord, you just did not raise and go back to heaven, but Lord, you showed yourself. You showed yourself to your disciples. You showed yourself to the masses to prove that you are alive and you will lead us all into victory, Father. 